Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, here we are. I'm Serge. I'm Chris Weber. And here we are on Libre Lounge. So we've just had Thanksgiving. Did you have a good Thanksgiving, Chris? Uh, I have had, I did have a good Thanksgiving, you know, the, uh, I mean, I guess that's a bit U.S. centric of us, but uh, um, I, you know, I enjoy the time with my uh, family and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to go and meet up with everyone. And also Thanksgiving is a good time to, you know, reconnect with people and then also happily head home too. Yeah, I uh, had Thanksgiving in Canada with my sweetie. Um, Canadian Thanksgiving is in October, so we had American Thanksgiving in Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, some some quick news. We had some great feedback on our first episode. People complimented uh, the topics. They complimented the audio quality, which was which was kind of funny. Um, but people seem generally excited, and we're happy to produce our second episode. Yeah, I'm. Uh, the response definitely got me very excited about uh, jumping into the next episode, and you know, I had a lot of fun recording it. So I'm very excited to be back here and and to knock more of these out. So on on the topic uh, of of things that we're uh, thankful for um, on free software, I want to to say again how thankful I am for the people who've listened to the podcast who are continuing to listen. Through our first episode, uh, now to our second, and uh, who have supported us. Um, I also want to make a little shout out to uh, Software Freedom Conservancy, which uh, is an organization dedicated to supporting and protecting free software. Uh, They are having a pledge drive currently and would love uh, people to support them. I know that you're a big supporter of them too, Chris. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Conservancy does great work for so many projects and also for, um, you know, I mean, in many ways, uh, Conservancy is, um, I I consider to be not just um, this amazing uh, kind of foundation of support for all these different projects, but also a really important voice keeping free software kind of uh in in uh you know keeping moral grounding for free software in a way that that i think is very constructive i agree and we should we should do a whole episode on conservancy in in the future um but i just maybe we can get some conservancy people on this podcast. yeah in fact you know this podcast was inspired by the 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 two the two now leaders of software freedom conservancy uh bradley coon and uh, karen sandler's um podcast free is in freedom and that inspired us to decide to make this podcast so so yeah i think it'd be great if in the future we could get them um, one more quick uh, shout out. Uh, I am now on the Fediverse. Uh, over the Thanksgiving break, I installed uh, Mastodon, which is a popular uh, activity pub powered uh, communication platform. So you can find me at, at emaxon at emaxon.net. And I think we'll uh, probably by the next episode 
have a Mastodon instance for, or at least an account for the show and a Twitter account. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, so actually you've been, you've been very uh, strong on the rem reminding ourselves to uh, uh, explain what topics are. So uh, maybe you should define the term. Yeah. So the Fediverse uh, is a term that, um, we can, we should have a whole topic about what federation is, but it basically means uh, the social media platforms that are user controlled rather than uh, necessarily large corporate control and that allow users to communicate with each other across servers in the same way that email works uh, across servers. So if you have uh, maybe an email account at your school or your work, it works seamlessly with, you know, Gmail or Yahoo or what any other system. So uh, in the same way, there's no reason that social media has to be controlled by these silos. Instead, the Fediverse allows everyone to be on equal footing. Does that, that sound about right? That sounds about right. Uh, um, and yeah, definitely a lot of opinions and thoughts that we could, that I can certainly throw into that since I have some amount of background in Fediverse yeah, development. That's right. um, but I know that the, the big news on your mind was uh, NPM. So I thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Um, you could introduce it. I'll talk about it. And then uh, maybe I'll just hand it over to you. Okay. So, um, so there's a, so it's, it's partly about NPM. It's partly about this specific incident kind of, and then, uh, and then kind of, uh, I mean, I, I think that this leads into a number of larger topics. Well, okay. I'm doing a bad job. I should just jump into specifically what the incident is. So um, recently there was a package on uh, NPM, which is the node package manager, free, very common package manager for JavaScript uh, libraries, especially the Node.js uh, ecosystem. Let me, let me jump in. So, because uh, I yeah, realized we we, uh, we we talked about this, uh, I said I would I would do this a little differently. So, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the headline. I'm gonna jump into some detail for our non-technical listeners, and then I'm gonna hand it back to you. So the okay. the headline is that in one of the npm li npm libraries, it was found that there was some code to uh that made every application that was using this library into a bitcoin miner that the developer was profiting from so the, the meaning the 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 uh author of the library was profiting from is that is that about accurate um i'm not sure it was turning it into a bitcoin miner i think it was stealing bitcoin private keys okay. so that it could steal the mm -hmm data directly so it could steal your coins directly oh, not just okay that's ones. that's that's far worse than i'd heard so let's explain just to our again our non-technical users what a library is what node is what npm is and then go from there so if you're writing a, a complex piece of software it's a lot like building a car or an airplane or a house uh, if you tried to build every single component yourself it'd be impossible so if you're building a car you know, you might use uh, the engine from one company or the body from another company or the, the brakes or the brake pads from a third company, and you'd put them together. You'd engineer things to work together, but you, you as, a, as a car manufacturer don't have to build every single part yourself. In the same way, software developers don't have to 
design every single piece of of code that goes into a very large complex piece of software. Instead, we use libraries. And libraries are just pre-existing uh, components that we tie together. Uh, we call it gluing them together. But we basically integrate large pieces of software. And sometimes when we're writing software, we build new libraries that we then let others use. But, but libraries are basically, you can think of them as off-the-shelf components that we use. Um, Node is a... Um, a software system built on top of JavaScript. JavaScript is the library that's most commonly used um, in web browsers, but it has been used by the people at, at Node to write servers. And NPM is just a, you can think about it like a catalog of libraries. So in the same way, if again, if you're building a car, you'll know about all the different breaks that exist on the market and you can just order some. With NPM, you can just look through all the software packages, the software libraries that exist for Node, and then you can just say, oh, I'd like this and I'd like that and I'd like that. And NPM just makes that really easy. That's right, that's right. Uh, also, one bit of meta, one comment we got on the last episode was that we explained things like what GitHub, Git and GitHub were. And uh, my response to that is if you, would like a version of this podcast that doesn't go into the technical details. It's free culture, and you can uh, make that modified version yourself. Uh, sorry, that's an aside. Uh, but I think that, in general, we're going to want to go into the amount of detail that we feel like on these episodes. Um, but I suppose that was quite a diversion. Uh, uh, so, so jumping back into it, about the specific um, piece of software. Um, so the piece of software is called EventStream. Um, and what's interesting about, you know, it's stealing the software, stealing, you know, people's private keys is, um, well, a couple of things. Uh, the A, that it's kind of interesting that it was able to, um, and I, I guess we'll get to why it's interesting that it, it was able to later, but also um, it's not the first of... Um, kind of fiasco in packaging in NPM land recently. There have been a, a few of them recently, one of them being uh, ESLint also had a backdoor inserted into it um, for stealing NPM credentials. Now, if I remember correctly, in the ES, and that one was, so that one was about stealing the tokens that allow you to upload packages to NPM itself, whereas this one's about stealing the keys behind your, you know, virtual money of Bitcoin. Um, what's interesting about both of those is that they were both about uh, intercepting the packages that people were installing these libraries. Uh, but in the case of ESLint, uh, that one was, I think, uh, intercepted the, um, didn't try to attack the upstream code. Instead, it was the uploaded release, the uploaded kind of uh, um, release package that was installed in um from the package manager. So sometimes software is developed in, you know, some sort of version control system. And then when releases happen, you know, they, they are kind of these separate um, pieces that get uploaded to, uh, uh, to some sort of package repository derived from that. And in the ESLint scenario, that's what happened there. But in this new one, in the event stream category, um, they actually, uh, they instead the attack happened at the upstream development and the way that it happened 
was the person who was behind this library originally has worked on a lot of different things. And they were like, oh, you know, I'm not maintaining this. And another person said, I volunteer to maintain it. And so the uh, uh, the person, uh, so the, the original maintainer is like, okay, sure, take over. Um, and that person who took over inserted the malicious code into upstream. So that's interesting because we haven't had an attack like that directly in upstream before. Uh, now, one one more mention of another uh, fiasco-ish in NPM that's fairly different was that um, there is this left pad um, chaos that happened where somebody just, um, they got a cease and desist about one of their other packages, and they said, "You know what? Screw it!" and deleted all of their packages. You know what? Let's let's do... let's put that on hold just because th- that's a whole other topic. Or yeah, I agree. Uh, so it's, Let... that one actually, I guess, goes off in the yeah. Loop, let's whereas let's, I think I want to stay on this and... NPM and explain a little bit more about about what the attack was and how it happened and what we mean by malicious code and and all of these sure, things. Sure, sure. So um, okay, so let's take this one at a time. Um, and I see, I, I see what you're seeing about uh, this attack on Bitcoin. So I think most most of our audience will know that Bitcoin is a form of of uh, online currency. So basically, when Chris says attacking Bitcoin and attacking Bitcoin wallets, what he means is stealing people's money, right? So so this piece of software was used uh, to steal people's money, and and there's a lot that's interesting here, um, in that. The attack was not, as, as I had originally thought, to mine Bitcoin on servers, but rather to attack and to find Bitcoin, basically find the money that's on developers' laptops and desktops as they're working, find those wallets, steal the money out of them, and then move that money. That's a much different scenario than we've seen previously. Um, this right. isn't... And it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like as if, and since it's with stealing the credentials, it's kind of like it uh, was, you know, finding the the way to log into your bank account, right? It's that basically the equivalent of that, um, because you know your private key is how you control your account in Bitcoin. Right. Uh, this isn't the first malicious code. So when we say malicious code, we mean you know, a program, again, a library is supposed to do something, right? It's supposed to do some kind of thing for your program. But if it's doing something other than that, especially something harmful, right, that's that's malicious code. So this isn't the first time in the free and open source software world that we've seen malicious code. Uh, I remember in 2003, a backdoor was placed in one of the Linux kernel mirrors. Uh, so one of the places you could download from uh, had put had injected some malicious code into their version of the kernel that you could download. Um, that was found relatively quickly, but it it brought up a whole lot of issues around uh, version control and and we could we could have a whole episode just about Git and and how that incident actually was uh, one of the reasons that that um, Linus looked and took uh, version control more seriously. Um, we've also seen attacks. But, I just want to, let me just finish this one part. Uh, we've also sure, seen attacks yep, yep, yep. where someone will take a piece of free software and then put some, some malware in that and then package that up as a binary and upload it somewhere. So if people remember the website SourceForge, it used to be a, 
huge hub. It used to be sort of the GitHub of the 1990s and early 2000s for free software. And once people moved away from there, um, malicious people started putting malware into SourceForge programs and SourceForge became an unreliable place for us to get free software for this reason. And I know that we could we could have a whole episode, and I think we shall we will have an episode about reliable builds and why this is important. But uh, throwing it back to you. Okay. Yeah. So I so the, what's interesting is that the kernel example that you brought up, I think, is much closer to the uh, um, kind of the ESLint. Which is not the one that I um, that that's very recent. It's the other one that where you know kind of uploading the package, right? So it, you're not really targeting the upstream developers. Instead, you're trying to kind of man in the middle it in some ways, uh, and uh, um, and then more even and the SourceForge thing is also an interesting man in the middle thing, especially because the recent SourceForge stuff, um, SourceForge itself participated in man in the middling things right so like the gimp you would download it from sourceforge and then sourceforge was actually um overriding the windows binaries and installing some stuff and now so the new owner of sourceforge has apologized and you know has said you know we're not doing that anymore and stuff like that but you know it's interesting that but in both of those cases it was not really um the upstream developers that were were really involved in that attack right right they're sort of like uh so you know in this case sourceforge and the and the linux mirrors are are like distributors right so they're not the ones producing the original software they're the ones that offer a place to download it they're just they're just a place where you can get it but the original pristine what we call upstream um software was always free of that kind of um attack Right. And so what's interesting to me now is that um, and so and, and we'll get into this more later, but I'm not I'm not trying to actually I think that I mean, the person who actually did the malicious stuff, I, I think we're we are in full rights to attack. Um, but the person who handed things over and I, I guess that's getting a little bit too ahead of our spells. I'm not as interested in attacking that right there, because in some ways, this is the first time that we've really seen this happen. Right. Um, pro- Previous to this moment, I think uh, we just, in some ways, if somebody offered to take over one of my free software projects, and yes, you could say, okay, well, they should have looked at the development history. You know, did that person work on any free software projects before? Did they have this social presence and stuff like that? Blah, blah, blah. But I mean, being a maintainer is hard. And prior to this moment, I don't think the attack scenario had really happened in practice where you'd say, oh, you know, somebody who's offering to take over a package may actually be doing so because they want to uh, intercept the upstream in some way, right? It, it, to, I don't believe I've heard of an example like that. Have no, you? I've, I've never heard of that either. And and I think this is an important uh, part of a larger conversation that we'll have to have in a future time about you know, what it means to write software and what your social obligation is. So if I write a program and, and I've written plenty of these little, little programs that get used by maybe, and in my case, you know, maybe a, a dozen or a couple dozen people. And in your case, you know, thousands of people. And then it comes time that, you know, years down the road, um, somebody wants a feature or somebody finds a bug. And, maybe you've moved on and don't want to work on that program anymore. 
And if someone says, oh, well, if you don't want to work on it, don't worry, I'll take over, I'll work on it. Um, I have a reason, I've got a motivation, I've got a use case for this, and I'm going to be a good steward of your work and move it forward. Um, there's a lot of gratitude, right? Like, oh, good, I don't have to do this anymore. Um, right, right. But as you say... Yeah, it could be even a sign of relief, yeah. right? Like, oh, uh, I, I felt guilty that I was not keeping this up to date. Right, and so... Uh, and what's and what's interesting here, and again, we can we can get into a whole long topic about what distributed software looks like, distributed software development. But um, if I, so what Chris is saying is, if if he wrote something, um, and then gave it up to another person, uh, the software is going to look like it's still the officially blessed version, the the version that that Chris made. And that's important because there's some social clout around the official upstream version that now this developer and this who is in this case malicious has inherited. But we've had free software since the 80s. And as Chris said, this is the first time we've, we've really seen this attack in real life. Right. So, so I guess I, I want to throw this back to you. Why do you think this is new? Is it because, and what, what prevented it before, right? Was it the hacker ethic that kept it from, um, from somebody doing this type of thing? Why now? Um, I think there's a number of reasons. So first of all, uh, it didn't, so we have pretty good um, permission system. And I know you want to talk about permissions in, in, um, in GNU Linux. So we'll talk about that, but it's really, you know, you, you brought up the example of stealing your bank credentials, right? Well, it's it's actually fairly hard to find someone's bank credentials um, in standard free software. Like you'd have to put a, a, a program that would log every keystroke and go through that. And while that is possible, those are relatively easy to find, right? Programs that do that are relatively easy to find and to stop. So it, it's been tricky to, to, to put in that kind of malicious code. Um, it also speaks to how many libraries are out there, right? There's an exp there's been this huge, I don't want to say exponential because I don't, you know, somebody with a math degree is going to look at the software and tell me that it's not exponential. Um, but there's a ton of code out there. There's more source code running on my, you know, GNU Linux desktop than I could ever read in my entire life, right? There's right. no You're way. You're never going to be able to audit the entire entire your the every single bit of software that's on there it would take many many lifetimes and so and, and and i would even say that for most of the software that i use and software that i develop i'm reliant on other people to have done that work there's there's just so much code out there right so if i'm writing a a program in let's say python right which is a fairly common programming language, I'm going to be using a bunch of Python libraries that I choose to download. I'm also then, so I'm trusting all of them. I'm trusting the Python runtime environment. I'm trusting Python itself. I'm trusting the operating system that runs underneath Python. I'm trusting the web server. I'm just trusting a whole bunch of software that, you know, that it just works. And I think that's the it doesn't just apply to software. It's an infrastructure issue, right? When I, when I walk down the street um, or drive a car, I trust that, that all these checks have been done, that the street is safe, that the, 
the car is safe. You know, I don't have to think about that. I can focus on just doing my task. Um, I think that, you know, I do think it's interesting that where we are in terms of, of why haven't, hasn't this attack come before? But I think it's, I think the opposite question is more, is just as interesting, which is well, not just why now, but why has it taken this long? And I think because A, because it's difficult and B, because we're, you know, the number of people who are software developers is still relatively low, right? This is an attack that only applies to people developing software um, on their computers. Now, the one thing that we didn't mention is just how popular this software library is. I think I saw one estimate that said there was over 2 million downloads of this thing a week. That doesn't mean there's 2,000 developers, but you know that means that there could be thousands of developers using this one software library. So I don't agree with you that this that it's hard to exploit free software operating systems that they are and that the security is particularly good. I guess we'll get into that more later. Um, but I, I actually think that the idea that it's really hard to do these types of things is actually false. I think what's protected us is not that free software has a particularly good security story because I actually think that we don't, right? Like, so for example, you can write to this special file that XOR, that XORG or XLN or whatever you want to call it, your kind of display management system is. And you can, you can pretty much intercept and run any command as long as you have the ability to write to that sort of. Um, like, so it basically, there are so many layers of our system that are dramatically unsafe. And all software that we run runs basically as us, right? So if I run Solitaire, Solitaire is a very dangerous program. It can read all of the files on my operating system and upload it to a website and delete any files it wants. And why can it do that? And so, okay, we're definitely, I'm definitely jumping ahead here, but I, I think that there's, but as for why, did it not happen till now? I don't think that because it's we have particularly safe designs. I used to believe that, and I don't anymore. I think I used to believe that more when I was coming from the Windows background. And in comparison to what I used on Windows 95 and 98, you know, the Unix access control list model seemed so much better. But um, really, I run so much software. And as you said, have to trust so much of it. I really think that what's kept us safe is the hacker ethic in many ways is, you know, you hinted at this, um, you know, who is developing the software? You hinted at it, I think, with the, you know, when, you know, like, what's the um, incentives of the people who are developing it, right? Uh, and I, I mean, so I know you had a little bit more that you wanted to say about the incentives of people who are developing things, I think. No, I think I think you you might be right. And let's jump into this. So there have been attempts. So actually, let's let's start with what we mean by running as yourself, right? So if I'm running a program on my computer, I log into my computer as myself and I run my email program or I run my web browser or whatever, the web browser is able to do anything uh, on behalf of me. It's basically acting as an agent of mine in, in a sort of a social legal sense, right? It, it, it can do anything that I can do. And, and so can my email program, um, or so can my PDF reader. So if my PDF reader 
is malicious and it wants to go and talk to the internet, it can, right? Just the same way my web browser can, even, even if I don't think that my PDF reader should be doing that. Or, you know, maybe my MP3 player happens to be, you know, listening into my keystrokes and sending that off somewhere. Well, that's, that's theoretically possible. And there have been attempts in the past to put different permission systems on top of the permission systems that were traditionally used in, in our Unix-based operating systems. By the way, when I say Unix-based operating systems, I, of course, mean GNU Linux, but I also mean um, for Mac users, OS X, um, as well as FreeBSD and others. So there were mandatory access control methods that were put into uh, SE Linux and also AppArmor. Um, AppArmor did gain some traction for a while, um, but these systems have traditionally been pretty cumbersome and hard to use, hard to configure, um, and just, just difficult to work with. There's sandboxing, which is used in um, Android, the Android operating system, and there's also um, sandboxing and virtualization used in CubeOS or Cubes. I believe it's Cubes OS, uh, which I will link to, which is a uh, a new operating system that is GNU Linux based, which allows for um, every application to be either virtualized or containerized in such a way that it that um, things can't touch each other, uh, applications can't do malicious things to each other. So, uh, including access to the file system or making network calls or whatever. So, so these systems do exist, but traditionally they've been fairly cumbersome. Right. So, okay. So the, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So what one, one thing that you pointed out was that a lot of these things could have malicious bits in them, right? So let's go to the email client, right? So maybe I downloaded a malicious email client and it's very easy for us to, you know, blame that. Or you can imagine um, that my email client has a malicious library in it, right? Um, but is there really a distinction between that where it's a malicious component or a buggy component that can be exploited. And in my view, there's no distinction. Um, there's like there's a there's a distinction in some ways of uh, what the intent was, but there's very little distinction that's important in terms of security defense. Um, and uh, um, well, okay, there's that there is actually a difference there in, when it comes to the accountability point. But when it when it uh, when it comes to so let's say. I have, I'm using my email client. Well, it may not be that my email client is malicious or buggy in a way that it's vulnerable itself. Um, so tying back into the original topic, it could be that it depends on a library that is in some sort of way buggy, right? So maybe it's using libpng or libjpeg or something like that, that like either of these libraries just renders an image, right? And it's just got a pinprick sized vulnerability in it. Like just the tiniest, a single line of code that's just the smallest little uh, bug that opens up an incredibly vast can do anything as you exploit, right? Like some sort of, you know, stack management, memory management type issue. Uh, the technical details don't matter. But the point is, is that either through malice or through bugs, something like this can happen. And what's interesting is, is that we have seen a lot uh, from the bug category over the last many years, right? Like the, especially in memory management issues, um, that's not new, right? We've seen 
lots and lots and lots. And actually, if you read LWN.net and look at their security advisories thing, it's kind of heart-stopping to see that every day you have to churn to keep your system up to date to escape from a nonstop slew of discovered vulnerabilities. And those are just the ones that have been discovered, right? Your system is vulnerable right now, right? Like, guaranteed. Um, It's just... Which ones have been discovered and, and have been patched, and are you up to date on those patches? Yeah, right? and, and I think another part that gets um, that goes unrecognized by a lot of people, developers included, is that we rely on a lot of development that is self-reporting, right? So, so that we we assume that a developer who finds a bug, especially a security bug, is, is going to take care of it. Um, and when they do, they'll put out a security release and a patch, um, and that's that. And then the sorry, and then the application um, authors will integrate that patch or that security update or the operating system um, or the distribution. In the case of GNU Linux, they'll they'll integrate that, and and that essentially works a lot like a product recall, right? So a new version of a library comes out and, and everyone is assumed to update their software regularly and then that gets fixed. And it's considered important that you know you keep your system up to date, not just with your own program, but with all the programs that are that it depends on, which can be a, a fairly long list because as you say, maybe you rely on this this library, but that library has its own things that it depends on. And, and so it's impossible for anyone to, to know about everything that's going on. And so, so instead, we, we rely on this um, partially organize, organized and partially social contract of, of good faith and effort to, to keep our systems up to date. Right, right. So um, I... So let's get into the, you know, why why did NPM, uh, you know, why is it that we've seen these number of issues in NPM recently? I think over the last year is when we saw all three of these. And I think um, to get into that, uh, so one reason that I think that this may be happening is that, you know, both NPM happens to, unlike a lot of other software, target both servers and clients and with the most popular client in the world, right, which is a web browser. Right, so JavaScript is pretty much everywhere, so that makes it appealing. But I also think that in some ways, npm's packaging is a mess more so than other package managers. Now, I'd like to get into how we might improve and defend these things, but I also want to emphasize that I don't want to get into a very blamey approach about that because I actually don't think that many of the things that are being developed are these problems are happening. Because people are, you know, there's a very big temptation to be like, look at this person being incompetent. And I think that that's actually fairly rare. What I tend to think is more frequently the case is what are our current infrastructure and best practice approaches? And though fixing those sometimes requires moving forward as kind of a, a developer society, right, to make things better. Um, and so when I'm Focusing on these things, I want to emphasize that I'm not interested in playing the blame game, right? Uh, I think you probably have a, a yeah, similar I, feeling. Yeah, in fact, right? I think it's I think it it undermines our larger cause, right? So we could we could have a whole podcast about the individual who put this one 
uh, malicious code into this one library that's used everywhere. And we could talk about what a what a terrible person he is and how he shouldn't have done that. It that doesn't protect us, um, right? And it, and I mean, this person has built a lot of software and has tried pretty hard. And you know, as we said earlier, it appears what happened was. Um, they, somebody offered to help them and they took that up that help, you know, and granted, did they do enough of an, a background check to find out? May, you know, maybe not. Well, but I mean, even, hand, even if we talk about, even if we talk about the person and, and, and I'm sorry, I don't remember this person's name, the person who actually put this, the, the malicious code in, right? The malicious code author, right? Even if we talk about that person in particular and, and talk about what a terrible person they are. It's, it's, yeah, I'm not it's, sure we know what their identity is. I think that they they hadn't really done anything before. Got it. So so you know, but it it, it doesn't it doesn't get to our larger point. I, I know you've got a lot of opinions about about the way operating systems and libraries should talk to each other. Um, you, you you've talked um, not necessarily in this podcast, but in previous in another podcast, you talked about object capabilities, and I, I'm very interested in object capabilities. I don't I think we we don't have time for a deep dive. But how you think that that npm and the the JavaScript world is more vulnerable? I'd like to hear about that. I'd like to hear about object capabilities and especially how object capabilities is distinct from mandatory access control because that mandatory access control is an approach that we have tried and has not worked for us. Right. Um, so so why don't we get? Okay. So we I wrote out three different sections for talking about how to prevent issues like this. And object capabilities is the most complex one, so let's do it last. Um, I mean, it's not a complex topic, but it's the most kind of new things introduced. Um, so first of all, I think we should recognize that we want to do a defense in-depth approach, right? So um, we don't want to just say, aha, here's the magic bullet, um, and then security's fixed or solved, right? So we we do want to create a security culture. We do want to, you know, do a, a number of different things. But the, um, but you know, so I I think that object capabilities help a lot. But let's also review the other two points. So the first one I would say is accountability. So we talked about this already, kind of like you know, um, in a certain sense, this person. Uh, so uh, the the original author Dominic Tarr, I think, uh, was contacted by this you know, this malicious user and said, uh, I want to take over. Well, you know, should there be more of, you know, an accountability structure, right? So I think you and I are somewhat skeptical that um, that there's good reason to blame this person, partly because we haven't seen this attack before, but also, but maybe, you know, sometimes when these things happen, it does change the way that people work on things. And in some other projects, we do see accountability becoming more serious, right? Like, so both the Linux kernel, sorry, blech, the Linux kernel and Debian both have accountability structures, correct? Yeah. So in Linux, um, if you want to put source code into the Linux kernel, now, of course, you can always make your, your own version of the Linux kernel. But if you want to be in one of the official Linux kernel, you have to find the subsystem that you're interested in introducing your changes to, you have to work with the delegated. I don't. I don't think they call them officers, but we'll we'll call them the person in charge of that subsystem. So, for example, if you want to work on the sound part of the Linux kernel, there's a there's a person. I'm sorry, I don't know their name, um, who's in charge of sound. 
And there's another person who's in charge of networking, another person who's in charge of, of say, memory management. And so if you want to make a change, you have to work with, with that person. And Lin, Linus, who is in charge of the whole project, he doesn't have to know about every single developer. He delegates responsibilities to people that he, that he has a trust relationship with. That's right. So, um, uh, yeah, com- I, I agree with that. There's also this sign-off-on uh, approach that the Linux kernel has, which we don't really need to go into, but it's another layer of kind of accountability. Um, you know, granted, somebody new can come in and throw in a patch and sign off on it, and it may not be noticed that that person really hasn't built up a reputation. But honestly, discovering reputation about a newcomer can be pretty hard, right? Maybe you up the game when somebody's offering to take over as maintainership, but this attack could have been introduced with a patch that introduced an attack that wasn't caught on code review as well, even though I think it was a little bit more obviously uh, viewable in this case. Um, So the next in-depth a defense in-depth approach, I would say, is reproducibility. Um, And so I want to say that I think actually NPM is particularly bad here. Um, So I wrote a blog post, I guess we'll link to it in the show uh, show notes, called uh, JavaScript, uh, uh, Let's Package jQuery, a JavaScript packaging uh, dystopian novella. And I think it got one of the most views of any blog post I've ever written, probably because... um, People who are in the distribution land probably have felt the pain of that uh, more often. So, in so there are two GNU Linux distributions that really care a lot about reproducibility. Uh, one of and those are Debian and Geeks, uh, GUIX. Uh, the and I would say that um, so both of those have a big focus on reproducibility and making sure that everything can be built from source and stuff. And notably, both of those communities have had a really awfully hard time getting NPM packages in. Um, And this is partly due to the way that um, many NPM packages are so small. They're like, usually the package definitions can be very frequently larger than the package itself because it can just be like 50 lines long. And then you just have, you know, hundreds of those tiny packages. And so it's very hard to, you know, stay on top of that. Whereas more traditionally, before npm, I think packages tended to be um, kind of larger contain or libraries tended to be larger um, uh, sets of code, right? So, and in fact, I, I mentored a Google Summer of Code project to get npm packaging support into Geeks, and we did that, and uh, um, and uh, or I should say the the contribu- the the, the, um, the student did that, but uh, unfortunately. Um, we didn't actually get the packages themselves into Geeks, and that was because of kind of the reasons I mentioned, and also because um, there's just there's a number of other messes that I I do actually think npm needs to improve on, right? Like the uh, licensing is very frequently not actually defined very well, um, so it's possible to have a lot of very small non-free packages, and also um, the uh, the you people may upload packages without having tried to make them reproducible. So, so I've got a question I, here. So, so I'm, I know a little bit about software reproducibility and build reproducibility. And, and again, I, I'm sure we'll have a whole show on that because it's a, it's an area of my interest. And I know it's a, it's somewhat of a, of an interest in, uh, I was going to say somewhat of a passion of yours, but I don't know if it goes that far. So 
JavaScript is a, we'll just call it an interpreted language. Um, and for our non-technical listeners, we don't need to worry about what that is. It's an interpreted language. Um, and that makes it similar to Perl and similar to Python um, and similar, in fact, to, to, to some lisps and schemes. And yet we don't see this same problem with them, or at least not to the same extent. So, so why do you think that is? Right, not to the same extent, and I think not to the same extent is key. Uh, A, we do see it to some degree. Um, so, uh, um, I, NPM is not alone in that. Um, I think the so Geeks does a bit better of this than Debian in that I think for a long time distributions traditionally, when you downloaded packages, you got there was a list of packages you got from your distribution and you just installed those packages as root, right? And you lived in two different environments. One, which was to develop um, for your local language. Well, at least you did as in, as a web developer, right? In Python, you might use virtualenv and, and other languages you may use, whatever. Um, and you actually, we got a dist, we got, a division, which I think is largely responsible for this mess, um, between the packages that were in distros, which did care a lot about licensing and reproducibility and everything, and the packages which were for development, um, which needed to be a lot faster moving and etc. Now, in Geeks, you can much more easily give a pack a, a file to say, here's the environment I want to set up for development and even use more bleeding-edge packages. And I think that's true in Nix as well. But for good reason, well, for long-standing technical reasons, this was not really possible in Debian. And maybe Debian can do better. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But what's interesting to me about this is that, unfortunately, it led to a situation where um, there was a big disconnect between language package managers and uh, distro package managers. And the problem that partly happened there is that a lot of these things that distro package managers had to figure out, like how you make sure that you can build things from source, how, you know, whether or not the la- the package is properly, li- you know, marked for like So what does that even mean? Stuff. So when, when I say, so uh, look, I, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I know what compiling software is when I'm working with C, right? I, I know what compiling software is when I'm working with C++. Um, and I know that if I'm working in Python, I get a PYC file, which is a byte compiled version of my source code. Um, that just All that does is make it a little bit faster to load. Is, is that what we're talking about when you talk about reproducible builds in terms of an interpreted language? Well, okay, so the reproducibility is that you're able to get the package definition and you can reproduce. So there's varying levels of reproducibility, I'd say. There's pure reproducibility, um, which is the ability to, you build the package and because that package and all of its parents are all reproducible, and that includes not including any timestamps or anything like that, you can get byte for byte exactly the same package every time but is that you, but that's that, that doesn't seem to be what you're talking about you seem to be talking about locking down the dependencies versions right so if i say that i'm building a piece of software that depends on foo i don't say i need foo i say well i need foo 1.8.2 and it turns out that foo 1.8.2 requires bar 2.3 
Right. So well, is that is that what we're talking about? I, I'm because I'm I, and, and maybe and maybe I'm going down a red uh, you know maybe I'm going down the, the wrong road here. It's a red herring, but I'm trying to understand what software reproducibility has to do with this particular problem. Okay. Okay. Let me give you a more concrete example. Right. So in Media Goblin, uh, we had our Python definition, and our Python definition actually we defined the setup.py file, and for the Python stuff. It wasn't so bad, actually. You could run the setup.py, and you would pretty much build the same thing there that you would build on the distribution side just for the Python side of things. Um, and some languages like Python are not really that hard in that side. So you mentioned the, compile, the compilation step. So maybe it's not just reproducibility. It's the capacity to build from source, right? So uh, on the other hand, to build jQuery... You need to be able to compile all, you need to be able to do that for every single one of its little dependency pieces. And it's actually very hard to do that, especially because there are problems where there are dependency cycles in NP, in the node land where, you know, you need to build uh, um, jQuery with Grunt, which depends on another build system, which depends on Grunt. And it gets really... <laughs> It, it gets really hard to sort out these things, and you have to go backwards in time to be able to find it. And these are equivalent to – so language development people are probably familiar with uh, um, bootstrapping problems to avoid uh, – um, bootstrapping solutions to avoid like Thompson-type attacks. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Um, but you should just know that it's really complicated, and NPM has that level of complicatedness throughout the whole system. Got it. And 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 even worse, every language package manager is a little bit special. Right? Python's is a little bit special. And JavaScript's is very special, right? And then, you know, maybe we also have something else, right? Like maybe we have some sort of Ruby utility that we call. And that's reasonably special. And each one of those, one of the problems we hit in Media Goblin was for each one of those, we needed to actually include every one of those package managers. And now suddenly, and it's like, and that is basically uh, every time that you end up including those, it, it basically like, I, you know, so we just said we weren't going to say exponential, but it, like it, it really is exponential growth for each time that you include another one of these language package managers, the the uh, the, the complexity multiplies on it. Got itself. it. Yeah. So that makes sense. So so instead, sort of skipping to the chase or what I hope is this the chase here, what we end up doing instead of trying to build all the software and trying to go through this complex processes, at some point we just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, this is the version. I trust that it was built properly. Right, exactly. So you just ship that jQuery.js, the, the single jQuery file in your uh, in your web application. You say, that's probably right, right? And, uh, especially, um, and this... especially if I got it from, let's say, jQuery.org, right? I, I trust that jQuery.org has the official jQuery and that the official jQuery is the good jQuery. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, I, I, yes. That, so that's the heart of the problem. And like, so we get, end up in this. We end up in one of two camps. Like, or actually, both of them are kind of the same camp. It's kind of the giving up approach to software packaging. And since um, 
NPM does not have the same culture of needing to reproduce these things. This is not being really included. And it's partly the history of free software distributions being decoupled from the web development process that led to the point where we have two different packaging ecosystems, and which is why it's so hard to get um, to get web applications packaged in free software distribution. Well, I don't think it's just I, I look, I agree with you that it's a predominantly or where it's more print. This problem is more pronounced in web development, but I don't think it's just a web development problem. So I, I worked in an environment, um, a, f- a former employer who I will not name. And for that former employer, we provided our own custom JCC. We provided a whole ton of libraries that were to the exact specification of our users who um, in our department, we treated as our customers. And in fact, different departments required different versions of software. And I guess the, mo- the, the, the currently in vogue response to that is, um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to rally you up here, is to say, is to kind of throw up your hands and say, well, okay, this is hard. This is too hard, in fact. So instead of trying to build this complicated build system that has audit capabilities throughout, use docker right or a container system and i'm 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 using docker as an example right but it but but i think that if i was there that's how that's what i'd be promoting currently i'd say look we can't um necessarily um maintain x versions of software i would simply inject their version of gcc into some kind of build system that would then compile packages or, or images in docker world um that would then get run Right. You're completely right. Um, so Docker is basically like static compilation for those who know what it is, but on the entire distribution level, right? You just, yep. the whole thing becomes a black box. And partly the black box thing is able to work sort of, even though it's not very safe, as you know, the topic today discusses, because um, many companies have a DevOps team, right? Since the focus of development has switched, and I partly think this is a user freedom versus you know just open source you know development methodology type of difference. When you just really care about building tools for developers, and you're only being oriented towards large corporations deploying things, then this might not feel like that big of a problem, right? Because you can say, well, we have a dedicated DevOps team to deploy it. That's not true if what you care about is individual users. But even there, um, clearly this actually affects um, even larger corporations because larger corporations are affected by the very problem that we're talking about. You know, I I, I hate to, it's funny, we we usually agree on so much. I'm going to slightly disagree with you here. Um, So I I guess there's two thoughts I've been having. One is if I, if I agree with the Docker world, and I'm not saying I entirely do, although I want to come back to it. If I agree with the Docker world, the Docker world people would say, well, if you just built your software inside of Docker, right, if you containerized your application development, then these attacks wouldn't affect you, right? So this particular attack against your Bitcoin wallet would be mitigated by the fact that that in Docker, the file system access is restricted 
by this application. So the application would never have had access to your Bitcoin wallet unless you, for some reason, gave it explicit access. So, so I think there is something to be said about that. The other thing is that for developers, and we have to remember that although Docker is now promoted as a tool for for uh, for large scale application um, management, it was originally developed as a tool for developers who worked in a system that was highly controlled, right? And so I'll I'll use my former actually several former uh, employers as an example. If they wanted to develop software um, in, let's say, Ubuntu, and that was not our operating system of choice, you know, our answer was, well, too bad, right? We don't run Ubuntu here. We run, um, well, let's say, you know, let's say something else. Um, so we run something else, Um and you want to use Ubuntu, well, too bad. You you have to change your development process. And they would come to us and say, well, it was so much easier to, to write this program in Ubuntu. And and you know, and then we'd have it back and forth and 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 end and end up being a hostile situation where developers wanted to just focus on developing software. They didn't really care about our operating system. And then as people in charge of operations, we cared about the stability and maintainability of our systems. Um, and we, we were not able to audit their source code. That was not our, that was not in our domain, right? So the, the promise of Docker is the idea that, as you say, um, it, it, it limits the interfaces, but in fact, that's the idea, right? The idea is that I, I simply take this thing and I run it and I don't worry about it. I think what's, what's happened is that that's gotten slightly, perverted in a way because it 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 this idea of being able to run your docker instance comes from the environment of hey this docker image came from our employees so we trust it up until now which where it has become hey this software program this whole other thing is from the internet some black box that i got from the internet right i i use a lot of docker in in production in fact um, the Libra, you know, the LibraLounge.org website uses Docker, and in, in that I use, um, for example, the Nginx, um, the Nginx uh, Docker image, right? Well, I trust that the Nginx Docker image is built properly, but but I didn't audit it. So so that so I think that there's some some truth to both sides of this. Well, okay, so hold up. Uh... There's a reason why I said defense in depth on these multiple things, because I actually agree that encapsulation is really important. Now, I don't think uh, and encapsulation and confinement. Right. Uh, and in fact, that's kind of where the object capability stuff goes. Now, actually, Docker is an interesting example because Docker does not do it well in many ways. It's very e it's been very easy to break out of Docker containers and it's happened over and over and over again. Uh, so don't assume that Docker is for security. Um, because it's not really a system that was designed primarily for security. It's been designed primarily for... For ease, um, of, de ease of deployment, yeah. That's right. So um, now if we want to talk about containment, so this is where the object capability stuff comes in. So um, you wanted to quote... So actually, th let's... So th you wanted to quote Linus's law here because I think that that ties into what we want to say next. I agree. Yeah, so Linus's law is that... 
with enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with that quote, what it means is that if, if enough people read source code, they will be able to identify bugs. And, and in, a, in a world where software is free and free and open source, it means that if they can see the bugs, they can fix the bugs. If they can fix the bugs, everyone benefits. Yeah, and that's it's a great quote. And it's also, when it comes to vulnerabilities, it's not true. Uh, it's at least not true when it comes to uh, maliciously inserted vulnerabilities. So what it may be, what it is true about is that it allows us to do much better as in terms of auditing software. But I think for a long time, I bought into the idea that by having community review, it'll be possible for us to make much more secure software. And I do think that it does help improve the security of software, right? When you have all collaborating entities wanting to review software, assuming everybody's collaborating um, or assuming that everyone's collaborating and the people who are malicious are incompetent, then um, then it does help improve and discover and fix problems. So I do agree with the open source methodology that um, we do do things better by having things be, you know, um, quote unquote open, right? Um, but the idea that this is a sufficient defense is false. Um, so uh, Ka Ping Yi, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, wrote a dissertation on, uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes, about um, improving electronic voting security. And I actually have not read, it's called Building Reliable Voting Machine Software. So I, full disclosure, I have not read this all entirely myself, but I spoke to some people who um, have read it and uh, I, and were even... I think involved in the, um, you know, they were they were actually on the committee. Um, well, there's a part in it that was described to me that I found very interesting, which is apparently in this uh, dissertation, copying ye, you know, in trying to investigate building secure systems, was like, okay, well, can we um, say that if we, you know, that like code review will be able to help us find maliciously inserted code. Um, and so what they did was they wrote a very simple language that was um, Python-like uh, and had some of the best developers in the world look at it, like uh, Mark Miller, I think Ellen Karp might have been using it, and some other, some other people who are very, very, very security-oriented people. I think, and, and so what happened was um, there were three, I think there were three levels of uh, attempts to insert intentionally malicious obscured code and um in the easier ones were found but at great effort and the harder ones were not found by anyone and these are by with reviews by some of the people who are you know the best in the world reviewing this who knew they were there and could not find them and upon the vulnerabilities being pointed out upon the malicious code being pointed out everyone agreed that they should have been able to find it, but didn't. And I find that very interesting because I feel like that that tears apart that whole argument that, you know, just because we have sufficient review 
that we will be able to uh, um, we will be able to prevent these problems. Yeah, I think I think coming from a cultural standpoint rather than a technical one, there's some there's some reasons behind that quote, um, and I, I want to come back to this. And I think we I think we're going to need to start coming toward the end. But uh, if we think about when that quote was made, we, we, there's two parts to it. So first of all, having access to the source code is a requirement for being able to audit it. Right. So so in a system where we can't access the source code, we have no chance of auditing it. Um, and that's that's vitally important. Uh, and so if we're comparing you know, free software that is potentially auditable with non free software that is non auditable, then then, of course, the free software will will always win. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, what you're saying is it's not sufficient. The other part of this right. is is that. Uh, is that there was a time, and I think we're still we're still partially in that time when we were trying to convince people of what what they were calling the the open source methodology, right? This this idea that well, if you have your source code made open source, then things will happen for you. And this was this kind of sales technique was used by open source proponents, and I'm specifically saying open source proponents. They were saying to companies. If you open up your source code, developers will come out of the out of the woodwork and they will start fixing your bugs for you. Right. Um, and that happens sometimes, but not nearly as often as it's sold. Right, exactly. So it, it as you say, it happens occasionally, but it's not enough. <laughs> it, to 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 it on its own should not be a reason for it's not the justification that we have for free software. We believe that free software has has lots of reasons, and we also believe it has some of these practical benefits. Right. Whereas the open source right. people would say, "Well, it's it's open source is better because it has all these practical benefits." And this is one of those situations that's so important where we are getting right now to the fundamental difference between the free software and the open source communities. The open source people would say, "Well, clearly." this is a flaw and maybe maybe proprietary software with with paid auditors is better and therefore an argument against open source where we would say no no we still need free software but we need uh some kind of either auditing which it, it appears from your um your your description of that report is insufficient on its own so auditing is not enough and then some kind of mechanism, which I'm sure you're going to get to soon, about how even if we don't have auditing, that that either code that is buggy and or malicious will be limited in the damage it can do. Right. So we should also say that this was found through auditing, sort of, right? It was the fact that people were able to look at the code and that and were able to find this. And with the same thing with the ESLint thing, you know, these were more easily found because the code was open right so um so it's not to shoot that down completely but also how many other of these vulnerabilities are there and how many other how many more pieces of malicious code are there that we haven't seen right um you know sometimes these things sit in there for a long time and certainly bugs and vulnerabilities uh um but bug-based vulnerabilities happen sit in code bases for years and years and years sometimes decades um so Moving on, uh, I want to quote Zuko, who made an interest, who had a very nice quote about this uh, from uh, that they they made on Twitter, which was, "It kind of depresses me 
how everyone is responding to the NPM dependency injection by talking about reusing code less or vetting authors more. Same thing. Instead of talking about making code reuse safe. This is why I think Agoric is important. I completely agree with this sta- this statement. Um, uh, I also uh, it's also important to note that Agoric is a company that is making uh, object capability uh, secure JavaScript software for you know specifically for what you would call smart contracts, um, which is a bit that that's kind of a whole topic of its own. But what's interesting is that they are taking the object capability se- approach, and the people there. Who uh, some of the people who are working at Agoric have actually been working for years to try to make JavaScript into a safer environment. Now, when it comes to object capabilities, that's a at least an episode of its own, maybe several. So I don't want to go into super big depth on object capabilities here, but let me give you the key overview of the idea. Key overview of the idea is that. Libraries start with no special authority, not to the file system, not to the network, not to any of those things. And instead, you pass in authority to those libraries. So instead of the library just reaching out and saying, oh, yeah, I'd like some of that network access. Oh, yeah, I'd like some of that file system access. It has to be granted it. Um, and this does not have to happen in the same way that we do it in an RBAC style system or role-based access control or access control list where some supervisor hands things out. It can be actually the program that's calling the library. If that program has authority, that program can explicitly pass it along the same way that we pass arguments into functions. Um, so there are reasons why this is the most secure way to do things. And I, again, I won't go into, into big depth on it, but you can think, oh, wait a minute. If that library did not have access to the file system and it didn't have access to the network, it would not have been able to grab your Bitcoin private keys and upload them to the network. Right. That's true, right? So, so what you're what you're saying is um, kind of like when you um, install an application on Android, and I think on iOS, right? It says, "Well, this program would like to do the following things, right? It would like to access your camera. It would like to look at your contacts. It would like to do whatever." And what you're saying is, okay, so when I'm, when I, an application developer, I'm using a library, I might say, okay, this application does have file system access, or maybe it doesn't need file system access, or maybe it'll even be something more interesting where I'll say, oh, sure, you'll have file system access, but only to your own files, right? Only to files you can, you create, you don't have general access to file system. Um, Or only to this directory. Right, right. And so, and in fact, and at that, and that's kind of like what Cubes does, where when you, uh, but it, it, it's, Cubes is an overlay of this kind of, of, of system where you can say, well, okay, well, this becomes kind of like a demilitarized zone where this becomes in this directory is a special directory where two programs that don't normally have access to communicate with each other can explicitly um, transmit data between them, can exchange data between them, themselves or each right. other, right? So so what you're saying is, okay, well, if, if we had this kind of ability as, as application developers, we could put that, and then the other part, I guess, and you're not, you didn't explicitly say this, but you could also add in an explanation from the developer about 
why do they need that? And maybe they only need that under certain circumstances, right? So um, the file system access might be, well, I need this if I'm doing caching or I need this if I'm doing persistence, but maybe I'm not doing persistence. Maybe I'm, um, maybe everything I'm doing is a ephemeral and I don't need to be able to access the file system or maybe something else. Maybe I'm not using file system access. Maybe I'm using a database, in which case I do need network access, but I don't need file system access and allowing. Or you only need network access to this very specific site. Right, right, and I could, and then I could list out that site, and and that would be something that, as a as an application deployer, right, as a DevOps person or operations, I could have I could have control over that at the application level, um, right. and that would be that would and, be and very if, powerful. If if this library had previously not had that authority, and then suddenly the new person who overtook it added that in then people who are using the library would now have to pass in those additional permissions, in which case they would notice that something changed, right? So that would be an opportunity to see, oh, wait, this thing doesn't need this. Why did this happen? Right, right. And, that, and that also creates more of a dialogue, right? I think, and I think that's the important part here too, is if when I say, you know, th if I say, as an, I'm going to be your library that you're going to install, Chris, I'm going to say, well, I need file system access, and I might just say, well, I need file system access, but I might not explain to you what the reason for that is. But I could instead say, well, I need file system access. Here's my reason. Um, and then you might say, well, your reason is silly. You don't need that. Or maybe, oh, okay, that makes sense. I understand why you need that. Right. Uh, and there's, there's, I, I don't want to, so there, so I think that that's a good approximation of what we want to get. And, and how, and I, there are some distinctions here between what I'm suggesting and what Android is doing and what uh, kind of the containerization approach is doing, but it's not too important for this particular episode. We can talk about that. Yeah, and we've been talking one. for about an hour and 15 minutes, so right. we should probably so, start to Okay, I have up. just a couple more things to say All on right. this topic, and then we'll wrap it up. So, A, um, this is not just theoretical. I mentioned that Mark Miller and other people at Agoric and stuff like, like that have been working on this for some time. There's a great talk that you can watch online. You can search for Mark Miller, and the topic is Securing ECMAScript Presentation to Node Security. We'll also link it in the show notes, and he explains how to do this. Now, disappointingly, in this presentation to the Node Security Group, it sounded like the, the particular audience was very skeptical. They were like, well, the stuff that we're doing is kind of working and stuff like that. We don't you know, like a, a lot of skepticism that really, really need this. But maybe that perspective will change now, right? We've seen a number of these vulnerabilities and maybe uh, people will start to change their minds about that attitude. Um, and this also isn't just an NPM problem. Um, I do think for the other reasons we discussed um, about the accountability and, non -re and reproducibility aspects make NPM a bit worse um, it, which makes this a little bit more dire. Um, but I do think that we actually have gotten to the state where, you know, as you said, there's so much code running on your operating system that there's no way that you can feasibly audit all that. And even an organization like Debian, which tries to be very, which tries to do a good job of vetting packages, there's no way that a maintainer managing a few hundred packages can audit all those 
impossible, right? So we need this more across the board, but how to be able to get there, and some of this stuff has been developed actually for decades, um, is a topic of itself. So I'm going to close it up there. All right. I think that we had a nice uh, in-depth discussion about NPM, and, and I think um, we, we brought up a lot that uh, I'll be interested. I'll be interested to see what our audience has to say and and places that they might want us to go and take this conversation going forward. Um, with that, do we have anything else we want to close with? Um, well, um, how about shout outs? Shout sure. out time. Sure. Okay. Um, so a uh, the last episode we talked about org mode and organization things and. Uh, your, uh, you mentioned how you were doing organization about using uh, kind of A, B, and C style level of tasks, right? Right, the cycle system. Yeah. So I incorporated ideas from what you were doing. So I just wanted to say that this show is already impacting me. I overhauled my org mode setup. Uh, I can, uh, I guess I could give the, the code that I'm using in a, in a brief form so that we could put it on the show notes. I don't see any reason why not. Uh, um, and, uh, I, I basically updated it to incorporate that. And I'd say it's been a big improvement having the ABC stuff, which I had previously rejected because I felt like I never really quite knew what to market as ABC. But then what I realized was if I stopped abusing the schedule and deadline properties, uh, where I would be like, this needs to be on my radar and just switch it so that my default priority level was D which is basically no priority. And then I would mark things as A, B, and C when I wanted them on my agenda. Then the scheduled and uh, deadline properties could actually take on the meeting they were supposed to have as opposed <laughs> to just get on my on my agenda, which is right. what they were doing previously. That, ma- that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm also giving a talk at Northeastern uh, University's Programming Language Lab, I think it's called, uh, on... Uh, December 7th, I guess I'll, we can link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's going to be about, um, oh, sorry. No, it's December 4th, uh, Tuesday, December 4th. It's at Northeastern, uh, university's language lab, which is in Boston, uh, or Cambridge, I guess. So if you're interested in that, I think Northeastern's in Cambridge. I really do not know that area well enough. Uh, um, so I, did not look up all the details before I spoke on this episode, so I guess I'll have to link it. But if you're interested and you somehow listen to this episode right before then, maybe you want to show up to that. Yeah, it's going be, it sounds, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Wait, what are you yeah, going to talk gonna be about? about okay. Oh, yeah, it's going to be about the Goblins library that I'm writing, uh, which is a distributed actor model system in Racket, and also the larger goals of what I'm trying to approach, which is the building distributed virtual worlds for the Fediverse. Oh, that sounds really awesome. I'm I'm jealous of the people who be will be able to attend that. Uh, okay. So, anything you want to shout out? Um, no, just the we had some really great feedback from people, especially on the Fediverse. And now that I've joined the Fediverse, I see how much, um, at least for now, <laughs> at this time, uh, it's a much kinder, gentler place <laughs> than Twitter. Now, of course, as the Fediverse grows, I'm sure that will that will grow and shift as well. But uh, we got some really wonderful, kind feedback. And I especially want to shout out to uh, Voltaire from the show um, Off the Hook, which is a show that I listened to since the 90s. And uh, he, he had some kind words to say. So to shout out to him 
And um, also just generally, we are absolutely looking for feedback on any aspect of the show. So if there's something that you loved, something that you hated, something that you wish was different, something that we you wish we would talk about, um, we are we are we are not want to say desperate because we're not desperate. We have a ton of ideas, but we really want your feedback. We really, I think both of us thrive on that. We 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 really need attention. So please uh, send us feedback um, uh, on the show. We're one episode in, at, or sorry, the second episode in, and we've already made some changes to how we structured this episode based on feedback. So oh, we will also, listen. I'm going to give one other shout out. And I know you're going to close with this in the closing anyway, but um, uh, I know that that you have, and I don't think we've talked about this as explicitly, but you know, you quit your job or at least are in the process of closing out and are doing free software full-time and free software advocacy full-time. And that's so exciting and so important. And uh, I just want everyone to go to your Patreon and support you. So well, that's very kind. Uh, I am doing some contracting, but it's in a very reduced fashion. So um, enough reduced that I'm still able to do the free software stuff full-time. And, you know, uh, it would be great to not work one and a half jobs too. Uh, it, so we're going to, we're going to make sure to, to link, uh, in, in the show notes and also on the website to your Patreon so people can support you. Very good. Uh, thanks everybody. Uh, we'll see, see you next, next time. time. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.